Welcome to hell. It was November 21st, 2010. The girls and I were visiting my parents in Sydney when my phone rang. The number displaying was Matt's, which was strange because he rarely called me when he was out on exercise. You know that sinking feeling you get in the bottom of your stomach when it feels like something just isn't right? Well, in that split second, my heavily pregnant belly sank. I answered the phone and sighed with relief when I heard it was his voice. But my relief was short-lived because the next words he said were, please don't get worried with what I'm about to tell you. What the hell? Do people not realise that those words are like a red flag to a bull? When you preempt bad news like that, of course you're going to worry. Especially a worrier like me. Next thing I knew, he was telling me he had been in an accident and that he was in hospital and that the accident had happened on the 19th. Yep, there it is, another red flag to a now raging bull. Okay, so hang on a sec. You're in hospital because you were in an accident three days ago and you're only just telling me now? What the hell? Why wasn't I told sooner? Are you okay? What are they doing for you? What's happening? I was vaguely aware of the rising tone and volume of my voice. Surely a courtesy call from someone to advise me that Matt was injured and update me on his condition was not too much to ask for. For the next few days, all I had to hold on to were short and infrequent calls from my husband, not really telling me much and, as usual, holding back the full-blown picture so as not to worry me. The part I struggle with here, besides the fact that my husband was lying in a hospital away from home and withholding information from me to protect me, the part that really tips me over the edge is that the entire time he was in hospital, not one serving member bothered to contact me. Not one senior soldier, nor one doctor or staff member at hospital. Not one person at the training camp and not even someone from his own unit. Nobody bothered to contact me to let me know what was going on. And I don't care if they say it was at Matt's discretion to tell me as much or as little as he felt he needed to. Someone should have made a call to let me know. Surely that was not too much to ask. Love Conquers is a relationships podcast by Matt and Kaz Page. Love can help us overcome a lot, but can't conquer all. You've got to own your worth. A bit of content warning. If listening to us talk about topics like mental health, suicide and trauma is likely to be confronting or triggering for you, it's best you skip our show. So today we're talking about Matt's accident back in 2010 and post that accident many years later, Matt and I wrote a book so we could try and get our story out there uh, for, for a number of reasons. But it, at the end of the day, this story is our truth. This is what happened to us and how we coped through it, how we survived because of it and what we do to improve ourselves and our family unit we also put it out in the public arena with the hope that other people going through what we have gone through can understand that they're not alone and yep. that there is a way forward. So to that, let's talk about what happened. Okay, so um, it was coming into November. We were down conducting 
an exercise on it was a training exercise for subalterns, uh, junior officers, um, and so we this were, is with the army. Yeah, with the army. Um, so we're down at Parkalbunyal Range, which is uh, in Victoria. And uh, as part of that, we were doing a night move in our vehicles, which are the, uh, they're an armoured vehicle, Bushmaster. Um, they're part of the detachment we sent over the Ukraine. You would have seen them on the news. Most people would have. Um, and we're moving in complete darkness. So the idea there is that you drive with your night vision equipment mm-hmm. and there's these tiny, they call, we call them blackout markers, and they're just a tiny little light that's probably barely even a matchstick wide and you can just see it, but on the night vision gear it pops up real, real big. So you can, even if you don't have necessarily good clearance of vision, you'll see that pop right out of in the night vision equipment. Um, so we'd gone out to do a task, carried out the task, and then we're on our way back. And, and for some reason at the time there, my driver was not not being very driverly, I guess you could say, in that time. Like he wasn't, he wasn't following because essentially our vehicle was the last one in the packet. And what I mean by that is that we're the last person out of the, um, the task we were doing because I was acting troop sergeant at the time. And so I've got to be the one to ensure that, make sure that everybody's out. And so... Anybody who's then interrogating us going into another AO would then, you know, know exactly how many vehicles are in the packet and then my vehicle's always last me in um, in, that, in that sense. And then we'd, as soon as we exfilled from the situation, we'd go back into moving tactically. Um, so on the way back there, my driver was struggling to, I guess, maintain the line of march. Um, his orientation was always off or his drifting, his speed wasn't matching the cross-country speed that the rest of the packet was doing. Um, and so naturally not being aware of anything else that was going on because we got out there fine, um, you know, I started to give him the sort of hurry up, got to get on the stick a bit, you got to start moving, we need to be going. He's like, oh, okay. And he just starts accelerating and I'm like, okay, cool, we're getting some acceleration. Um, I'm trying to locate the rest of the vehicles because at this point they've gone down over the top of a rise and so now we're, you know, behind a feature there on the other side and they could be making movements off to the left or right, things like that, depending on what the tactical situation required and the commander's intent on the day. Um, so from there, we started to accelerate. Um, cross kind of Probably, I'd say it was generally in the vicinity of something far greater speed than what he would have been allowed to do if anybody had known what the speed was on the range. Um, and... As we were moving through on the range down there in summertime, there's a lot of grasses and they sort of cover up these little like uh, dry riverbeds. And, and um, so he drove the vehicle straight into the riverbed. Um, at the time, I was standing outside of the hatch um, as per as we were ordered to. And so I got picked up and slammed against a robotic weapon station, um, smashed up my helmet, smashed up my face, my neck. Perforated your helmet? Yeah. So... Um, from there, basically, the next thing I sort of really remember is hearing voice in my in my um, helmet, and so I could hear because my inside the helmet they've got um, headphones essentially as part of the helmet unit, and I could hear sort of yelling at me um, because I hadn't responded to him or whatever at the time. And then at that time there, I just sort of remember sort of slowly feeling like I'm like my engine's starting to slowly pick up speed again, and I'm sort of start to try and orientate myself. And I'm like, dude, I just need you to – I get him out of the, the hole because we like literally stuck straight into the riverbed. So we got him to bounce it, um, which is just essentially manoeuvring it back and forth till we can rock it up and out of the riverbed. So we got him out of there. 
And then at that time there, I just said, like, I'll get you back in line with the trucks and then I need you to stay on the truck's ass for a minute, eh? And I just need to come down. I just need to just sit and fucking cool it for a minute. What the fuck's going on? He goes, oh, I can't see out of my night vision equipment. I'm like, are you fucking serious, mate? We drove all the way out here. He goes, well, everybody was much slower then. Yeah, okay, cool, all right. So unbeknownst to me, my driver hadn't fitted his night vision equipment correctly and so even though he had plenty of power and everything like that, he couldn't actually see through them and was expecting me to understand that somehow. And he came from a previous platform that we used to operate on, which was a tracked vehicle that had two sticks, one to go, you know, one control the left track, one control the right track and you could steer a guy by telling him, okay, right stick, left stick, right stick, left stick. Um, It's a bit different in these ones because they've got a wheel and so I'd use a kind of like a, a quarter method, like quarter turn down, quarter right, quarter left, whatever, just to get guys through. But it's not a hard, fast thing for moving across country. You really sort of need the guy to be watching what he's doing. Um, and he wasn't. So from there, um, we sort of get back on in line with everything. I radio through finally at this point and say, hey, listen, there's some issues we need to move. And they say, all right, we'll, we'll move now under reduced lighting. So they put on a whatever the next level is, which is kind of like a dumbed-down version of your parkers Mm -hmm. um, on so that you have a a bit better time of it. And then we just get the training staff at the time, they make the decision that, look, whatever's going on is going on. We're not sure what's going on, but we're going to just call index. We're going to move to the hard standing, like to the road surface. We're going to drive back to the refuel point where we'll carry out what we need to do there and then we'll move back to the night hide location. When we get to the refuel point, um, we do a conventional sort of refueling situation. So we put in a hide. Um, a hide's like a everybody faces outwards. So the vehicles are oriented outwards and we do a controlled switch off so that everybody shuts down and does their thing at the same time. So that, that way when everybody comes in, it's silent. No one knows what's going on. We go to get down um, and then the boss calls us in for orders. So that's where I've got to be because I'm the troop sergeant at the time and I go to step down off my vehicle and my feet just, don't catch me. Um, and I literally sort of like push my face across the ground a little bit trying to get up and there's just nothing. Uh, right myself again, um, dust it off, just go, oh, right, right, whatever. Then I liaised with the refueler, got that done, and then we made our next um, movement under low light, not tactical this time um, because of the situation, into the night hide, circled up, called in for orders, and um, same situation happened again. Just went to go get out and just was done. So they said um, that was pretty much where the DS or the directional staff called it. So at that time there, um, he made the decision that we probably need to get a medic out on site. Um, that had been something to do with a vehicle accident. Now, SOP on the range at the time too, I'll point out at this time, was also too, is anything head and neck related as to be a correct vehicle, not white fleet. So it has to actually be transported in a proper off-road army ambulance. Um, And so they sent out a junior medic who was on shift for the night shift. I think she'd literally just – this was her first week out of doing her medics course. And um, she came out and she's, you know, confronted with a a troop sergeant who's got a head injury but also is like ready to get on with his night and get his job done. She didn't have the experience or felt empowered enough to be able to go, right, I'm the person on the scene now, I'm the medical – person with the expertise so I decide what happens here and now so there's a lot of fucking around sort of in that just even the the directional staff 
liaising as to what they should and shouldn't be doing. They were waking up watch keepers from the unit and they were pissed because they were all reservists. So they were used to doing day ops and not doing much at all. Um, And so there was this real sort of right from the get-go, it was just like, well, get him out to the area hospital and then fucking leave it there and then we'll wait and see what happens in the morning. So I got um, evacuated like right from the get-go. The the medical care was not – it was non-existent essentially. Like I'm a combat first aider, so I understand how to do this stuff. Um, So I have an understanding that any time you come up against somebody who's got a potential spinal injury, head injury, um, you know, you go through your standard things. You definitely don't be – go along with anything they have to say because they've got a fucking head injury and you take a consistent set of stats. You make sure you use filling out all your paperwork appropriately so that you can gauge it as to when they're declining, if they're declining with a head injury. Um, and, you know, and it's not fair to do this to the young medic to put her in that situation to begin with. If there's something like this on the range, they should have enacted the range control and got them to get the guys that are employed to do this sort of stuff out there. But, they didn't want to be seen as the people that did that. And so they made a different decision. And this poor lass didn't even, you know, didn't even have the presence of mind at the time because it was all so much to even fit like a neck collar or anything like that on, um, which is pretty much like your first go-to, like with anything. This is just such a colossal fucker. Yeah. And then they evacuated me out to the Pakapanyul, um Hospital, which is on base. How though? Yeah, just in a, it, yeah, in the white fleet vehicle, so in a four-wheel drive cross-country. And then being an army hospital and just different decisions get made differently, but there was no doctors on site or on scene, so therefore I wasn't actually seen by a doctor till the next day. So, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's not ideal. Um, and in the meantime there, they're, they're sort of arming and ahhing is what to do. Doctor sends me into town to get some um, scans and stuff like that done, but we're talking about, like, a driver from my unit. What should happen in this instance is that somebody who is a duty driver should be tasked by the hospital at that time to take me to my appointment to make sure I get to my appointment and then be waiting for me when I leave that building so that I'm picked up and I'm safe-handed back to the hospital because there's a chain of custody and a duty of care involved. What happened was the hospital was speaking to my unit and my unit said, well, we've got two other guys that were injured the same night so what we'll do is we'll send our white fleet down and they'll take them in. They dropped us in at our different appointments across town at different places and just said, all right, just give us a buzz whenever you reckon you're ready to be picked up. <laughs> so are you fucking serious, cunts? Like, what the fuck is this? This is not what a professional fighting force is supposed to be like. Like, I'll, I'll put the caveat in there. I joined as a chalk, I did full-time service, and I finished as a chalk. So I get it. People give chocks such a fucking hard time. Yeah, they do, but I don't get it. I don't think it justifies your treatment. Okay. Well, people do give them a hard time and there is a reason and that's because of the old boys network, because of the fuck wittery that, that goes around there with these sort of institutions. But for a big chunk of them, you know, these are people that, you know, want to serve, they want to do something else, they want to have a bit more meaning to their life, they want to feel like they're accomplishing something and it's something that they can really sink their teeth into that has a lot of aspects there that they can sort of branch into. Um, and those guys, you know, they're, they're the same guys that will turn up as much as they can. They're the guys that will be there to do the shit jobs as well as the good jobs, you know. And so it's not – I'm not tarring all chocks that way, but there is a lot of fucking incompetence in that world and there is a lot of people that are just fucking there for – you know, cheap beers and fucking 
tax-free money. Yeah, so at that point there, they did a CT scan, which is, is my understanding now, is notoriously unhelpful at diagnosing brain injuries um, and microbleeds, et cetera. Um, so we did that, went back to the hospital. They said, oh, the scan's clear. I was like, well, how about this pinkish discharge that I keep getting out of my nose? And they're like, oh, no, it's probably just a bit of blood from your sinuses. You're fine. I was like, well, what are we doing then? He go, well, we're making, trying to make a decision as to whether we should, whether you're okay to be released or not. And I'm like, okay, cool. So I'm in a holding pattern for two days at this point and I've got training objectives I need to achieve and everything else. So I'm like, uh, let's do something different then. And so I started contacting my unit and just started shaking the, shaking the stick and going, listen, get them to either fucking start to do something to sort this out or fucking I'm, get, I'm, I'm going back. I'm coming back to the unit and you'll find a task for me. Because this is bullshit. I'm sitting around here taking up bed space and no one's fucking doing anything. So it was at that point there that they said, righto. They took that to mean that I, I felt like I was good to go and that I should go straight back out to the field. <laughs> um, at that point, I'm trying to think about when I, – I don't really remember where and when I was that I got reattached to the unit um, or the, our formation at the time. Well, I know I did and then um, during day operations at some stage there I was like I was just really struggling there and the, it was quite a hot dry day and then it just nosebleeds and nosebleeds and ringing in my ears and stuff like that and I was like ah fuck so I jumped down out of the vehicle then and just radio through and say like boss I'm having some some situations that's occurring from the other night's activities like I'm, I'm fucking there's something going on there and so he goes right I just jumped down the vehicle put a quick stop in he calls me over to his vehicle, so I dismount, wander over to that because it's a training command vehicle, so it's got the directional staff in it as well as the, the subaltern who's being trained. Um, and then I think one or two of his other subaltern mates that are also being trained but aren't on the clock at the time. And so the answer was that, oh, it must just be the hot, dry weather, so we'll put Matt in the Bushmaster and he can just ride around like that all day. And so we did that. Um, for the rest of the day, which, you know, riding in the back of a Bushmaster is far worse than riding in the front of a Bushmaster. So that's not ideal either. Um, and can I just ask how many Panadols and friends were you sucking down at this point? Because that's all you could get your hands on for pain relief. Um, oh, the answer is always all of them. <laughs> Anything you can. Um, yeah, because it's just, it's just you get used to that mindset too, right? So we're always used to being sore because... Our, C, our CVCs, which is our helmet system, it's it's got a weight. It's a couple of kilos. So you've got that weight on your neck. And then you add to it twin oculars of your night fighting equipment. So you've got those on a bracket on your head on the front. And then because that drags your head down, they put an equal counterweight on the back of your helmet to keep you balanced. But you're still moving in a vehicle and you're trying to see what's going on and doing everything. So your neck's always fucking sore and you've always got a fucking blinding headache. So you, you, you get used to, you know, you just start pumping, you know, army candy, like it's soldier candy, you know, Nurofen, Panadol, whatever. Any got anything stronger? Yeah, cool. Give it that sort of thing. So yeah, like you wind up just doing whatever you got to do to cope to get through. Um, and I think we were out field for another two or three days by the end of it. Um, and we, we met our training objectives Yay for the Australian yeah. Defence Force. <laughs> well, you know, but <laughs> Sorry. I would it would have been somewhat lacklustre if we had amended our training <laughs> our training achievements if if um or our training medals if 
I've been this banged up and still not got the job done, but I got <sighs> the job done anyway, so at least there's something there. What that brings us through to is end of X, and so we've got to refit vehicles, do all that stuff. And, you know, I got some st- – I got was getting shit done and because I was pretty busy because I had to manage the whole troop because um, the bosses are obviously doing off doing their stuff and their debriefs and everything like that because that's how that works. And so, you know, I was just usual me just trying to get shit done, trying to get the boys to hurry up. And then I remember being super irritable, but I'd also just come off like the th- the last three days of the exercise phase, in which case, you know, Choco's being Choco's love to make it so that you don't sleep for three days and shit like that. So, and then you got to come back and clean a vehicle and refit it, which sucks to say the least. And so, you know, I remember being really grouchy and uptight then. And there was a couple of blokes there. One of them was a, a full corporal like I was at the time. And I remember he'd just done a shit show of, cleaning his vehicle and stuff like that and i fucking face ripped this cunt so fucking hard his dad must have heard it like it was fucking embarrassing it was embarrassing for me because it makes us look shit like everybody thinks like look at these fucking chocks but i face ripped this cunt so hard just for being his shittest person and returning a vehicle that was in an unready state and that's probably when i think back on it like that was a real big indicator of like oh no hang on a second there's probably something wrong there because my level of reaction the reason was appropriate the delivery method was excessive to the nth degree you're just yelling at him yeah it's literally just fucking berating the cunt just in front of everybody heels together and not how you would have historically handled that situation no no better ways to motivate him but just you know i was an animal at that time so we get all that done, return home. It's and it was even the home, the ride home journey was kind of a tough one, right? Because we were driving, and so we had multiple vehicles and coaches and buses and stuff like that. And we had, I think it was three days transit. And we had to make two stops out of cost savings. We were sleeping literally on in car parks. We'd put a rubber mat down or a stretcher on a car park, and then that's where we'd be sleeping. And so you, you're irritable and you're tired anyway and you're sleeping a lot. All things that are conducive with a brain injury as well anyway. Um, so nobody's any of the wiser or thinking at any more of it, you know. Including you. Including me. Absolutely including me. And, you know, I get um, back home and it's still this, um, this injury or, you know, there's still things going on. See the army doc at the time, you know, he's like, well, no, we probably need to the hold back a second. So we'll just put you on temporary med down class for that week. We'll retain your income for the week and then you can go back to doing what you're going to do. So I was kicking around the unit for a week while I was waiting to see whether I was going to get cleared or not. Anyway, long as short, we get to that week. We've had a few more x-rays and things like that and nothing conducive with brain damage or anything like no MRI, no functional MRI, no other imaging, no nothing. And no other testing, like no neurological aspect testing, no EEG or anything like that to see what brain function is doing, stuff like that. And then he decides that it's been a week, that it's either going to get better or it's not going to get better and that if the scans can't say anything, then, you know, you'd be right to go. So he signs me off to go back to work. I like to try and go back to work. I'm trying to go back to my family life. And um, I think the first real time it came home was like holding Willow and not not realise. I just it couldn't – it's hard to explain exactly what it is, but I was sitting there holding Willow one day. And I just didn't even understand what she was. Like I knew she was important. I knew she was special. I knew it was something, but I didn't, it just wasn't in my brain at that time who, what she was. Um, and all I could do is sort of just throw it, or not throw it, but sort of, you know, really, really go towards Kaz and go, just take it, just take you it. You yelled at me. Yeah. Take yeah. this, take this now. Yeah. Your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and... 
I guess at the time too, you know, we had, you know, we had babies on the way and we had a baby and, you know, I was trying to start a business at the same time as well as all that and coming and going and it's just being tiring. So you don't put all these things together. And then you start to try and ask the questions and go, hey, hang on a second though, I do need to actually get help here. I think there's something really seriously going wrong. And then, yeah, there's the, the complete just disregard for it. It was kind of like, all right, what do you want me to do about it sort of thing. And uh, Disregard is an understatement. Yeah. It really is. And, you know, in fairness, I think it would be a really hard situation because I know how stubborn you can be and I know how you can dig your heels in. And I know when you called me and said you'd been in an accident, you played it down. You play it down. You, you, as soldiers, you all do it. I've watched you over many years. I've interacted with many a, a defence personnel and you, you people just play down what you do. It wasn't until you came home that I got to see firsthand yeah. just how busted up you were. And you talk about, you know, you, you – normal training exercises, whatever, you're tired, you're irritable and blah, blah, blah. No, you thrived on this job. You loved being away. You And, yes, you would get tired. And I'm sure there would be moments where you'd be irritable and that. This was night and day. Yeah. The person who came home was not the person that went away to exercise. Yeah. And it was that strikingly obvious. This is where, you know, not only did we have to go through you were in an accident and the rest of the period, but this is where I get so angry at particular humans that failed in their duty of care to you because it was night and day. You were not that person that came home. That was not you. It was really obvious. People should have done more faster sooner and should have taken better care of you because you would lay it down. Yeah. And because you didn't understand it, you buried your head in the sand. Yeah, well, I, I didn't really understand that it was an issue necessarily. Like I was banged up, but everybody else was telling me that there was nothing wrong. But, I mean, you can tell there's something wrong. You feel, like you start to feel that way too. Um, and then, you know, we go, and I'm pretty open with it in the book and I don't mind all. The fellow I pretty much lay at the feet of this one because ultimately this cocksucker thought it was an appropriate leverage tool that if I wanted to get a second opinion or get anything revised or seen to, that I would have to sign off on paperwork that he needed to fill the gap in his training fucking um, system because I wasn't even qualified on the night fighting equipment that I was supposed to be using. Oh, and also too... I was the one that flagged that we're not supposed to be moving outside of the vehicles if we have a robotic weapon station, especially across country at night. And I was the one who said, I don't feel comfortable doing this, sir. But, you know, to get help, I had to sign off and sign off on a fucking training TMP to say that I was qualified in those things and I had to sign off to say that this was the event and that it was probably user error and all this shit. The cunt, just to get even heard and seen, to try and get any kind of help because we were going to lose everything. And he fucking... Straight up blackmail me. And he would come into the coffee shop and just be like he was your best mate to get free coffee. Yep. yep. Oh, so, it was a journey. Yeah. I And this – fuck this cunt. So I'm a bit shaded in that sense but I, – And I don't blame you, honey, because, you know, being in uniform doesn't guarantee you're a good human in any mm. uniform. 
it, it, and yes, I understand your anger towards him and he really was the gatekeeper, but there was five other people as yeah. well in this process that really failed in their duty of care. There was. Through this process. There and, was. you know, it, he, he came home from the exercise and it was just a, a fast demise. As each day passed, he got worse and worse and worse. And trying to tell him or trying to talk to him about the blackouts and the, the mid-sentence just silent treatment and then all of a sudden he'd come back in and start talking to you again like nothing had happened. And you try and say, hey, babe, where did you just go? And he'd just tell you, what the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. And he would get angry, so angry so quickly that you were almost frightened to raise it but you were frightened not to raise yep. it because what the fuck was going on? Like where was my husband going? He wasn't remembering his children's names. He wasn't remembering what the day was. He wasn't and, – and he was working with clients. So it was starting to get to a point where, hang on, you're holding other humans' physical wellness in your hands. This is your business that you're trying to build and, and this is now going to be the demise of you and them if we're not careful here. So – all of this was starting to circle. Should you be driving? And every time I would finally get a spark to go, please go and ask for more help, they would take a great big shit on him. Well, imagine what came home from that. Yeah. And so there's little kids in the house that you're trying to protect this person from. He's still – I used to have to try and hide the Panadol and Nurofen because he was taking packets a day to try and stop the pain that he wouldn't acknowledge he was in. So, and so I suppose then the missing piece here is you didn't know that there was something wrong and you needed help and you were still working at that time? Like they yeah. hadn't stopped you from working at that yeah, point? Yeah, no. So the way it's supposed to work with with a reservist unit is that if a party gets injured whilst on reserve days, their employment gets retained until such time as they're medically upgraded again. Um, and... <sighs> I, for the life of me, do not understand this, but I was sent down to Tamworth to get assessed by supposedly somebody a bit more knowledgeable in the area of head, and it was a rehabilitative specialist, as I found out, not a um, not a neurologist, not anything like that. And so, quote it near as near as damn it, like, yep, clear symptoms of what I suspect to be post concussion syndrome, and sent that back to the army nurse, and the army nurse, <laughs> that must mean everything's okay. And just, that's it, back to work. So because of that, I didn't get medically downgraded and so therefore my employment wasn't retained. At the same time too, my insurance wasn't doesn't cover me anymore because now I've got a head injury that's not being treated and what we will later find out or later have diagnosed as post-trauma-induced epilepsy. Um, and so my insurance just doesn't cover for random shit that might happen. So I lost that business and... Um, and literally, it was going back to them, going like, "How can this be?" And then the real, the real, like the last point that the army really did before Kaz was like, "Fuck this," and sent the ministerial was that I was panelled for my sergeant's course. So essentially, it was going to get me the the coursework done for what the job I was doing and had been doing for the last year and a half, um, and it was finally going to get me promoted and everything like that. And so I was panelled for the course, and then some fucking over zealous can't actually yeah overzealous is probably a pragmatic word for him but he decided that it was his business to be in on stuff and half listen to things and this fucking idiot decides to go oh well 
Pagey was injured, and I know that he was injured, so he must be mech too. So I'm going to withdraw him officially from the course. And it's not just like the units running this course. This is like training command. Army runs these courses and stuff like that because they're proper promotion courses. And so he said, no, thank you. Won't need it. He's med downgraded, can't be on course. So he just fucked my progression for the next two years as far as, you know, where my career was going. And they also weren't paying me. And you're just like, what the fucking fuck? And so it just seems more inept and more inept. And it was sort of at about this time that as, you know, we lost the business stuff, like we just had no fucking clue what was going on. And that's when Kaz wrote the ministerial at the time. I was pregnant. We hadn't yet had the baby. And we were going to Helen back over and over and over again. Everything started to fall apart. So we were just in the process of trying to build a house and, you know, we were on our, on our block on our property out in Invergary and nobody would believe him and I was seeing stuff all the time at home. Like things were happening. He was having these, these silent moments that neither of us knew what it was. The kids were walking on eggshells. I was walking on eggshells and none of this was normal. None of this was our life. Even I, I said to one of his mates come to visit us one time and Matt hadn't come home yet from a, a training exercise and I laughed with this guy and said, listen, when Matt turns up, he's been away for a week on a training exercise. So he's not going to be the dude you know from old world. This guy that's going to walk through is going to be dirty and smelly and swearing a bunch and he's going to reminisce about his his week away out in the bush with all his mates and all the rest of it and he's not going to it's going to take him at least a good few hours and everything to calm down and to come back down off the high and everything. This was not my husband. This was not the person that we were now living with. He was cranky and he was tired and he couldn't get energy and he didn't want to eat and then he wanted to eat too much and everything about him just changed. And I don't know, I couldn't get that through to him. Every time I would try and it didn't matter which way I would try and deviate to have that conversation, it was not working. And I was reaching out to his mates in the army at that point saying, you got to help. Like, I don't know what to do here. Even they were saying they could see the change. They understood, but there was nothing they could do either. Nobody higher was listening. Nobody higher was believing us. We had Scarlet in January. And we had moved in, it was after the January when we had moved into the new house. So it was a good probably six or seven months at this point post the accident before I wrote the ministerial. So you think about he's having all of these seizures. He has no idea what they are. So he's ignoring them. I can't get through to him. I can't get the army to hear me because you can't go, like when they're in, They are so entrenched in it and they believe so hard that everything that is said and done in the army is, is, that's it, that's gospel, that's how it has to be. So there was not a shit chance in hell I was going to be able to go in and talk to anyone in uniform and say, please help, because no way, I you know, fuck the wrath of that. And he already wasn't in a good space. So if I even tried that, it was going to be detrimental. So... We, we're in this, we've built this new house, everything financially is going wrong, we're losing left, right and centre, we're staring down down the barrel of, of, you know, losing our house, losing everything and he's still not medically acknowledged, he's still not medically diagnosed, there's still no, there's no path but at this point now, he's also now starting to doubt himself. He's starting to go through the motions of thinking that he's crazy. 
that it's not real. And so therefore, anytime I try and say something, I'm feeding the misbelief. I'm, I'm wrong because nobody in uniform is agreeing. Therefore, it's got to be me. And I, there was no winning in that scenario. And we were starting to fight then. It was starting to impact our family unit as a whole. Um, and so that's when I got to the point. He came home one day and he just he, – he had tried to have a conversation and it was at that time where this asshole basically said to him, you know, if you want me to do anything for you, then you've basically got to lie for me. And he came home and he just said, they're, not, they're never going to believe me. This is – this is it. This is this is where it's going to be forever, and that was the first time that I started to realize that he was on a really fast downward slope because he was giving up. The only option that he could see moving forward was him checking it, because there was not ever going to be a respite from this, and the pain that he was in, and the pain that he was trying to hide was massive, and I didn't know what to do, so I wrote to the Chief of Defence and I wrote to the Minister at the time for DVA and Defence and I let rip. And it wasn't until that moment that all of a sudden bells started to ring and doors started to open and they still put barriers up. We, we were fortunate enough that Canberra gave us Pete Goom yep. and I stand by it today. I wrote it in the book. I will scream from the rooftops. That man saved us. But it took me having to write to our government before they would acknowledge Matt as an injured party and they then spent another close to probably 18 months trying to make him, it felt like they wanted to write it off as PTSD to his service in Iraq and Afghanistan. They couldn't allow it to be adjustment disorder or anxiety or anything else from this accident because they knew they had handled it so badly. The responsibility aspect of it was really, really lacking. And to be honest, like I've got, you know, I've, I've been pretty upfront with a lot of people. Is My theory is that a lot of people, um, the issues they find coming out of Defence Force is not so much from what they did during their service necessarily, but it's how the people that they were supposed to be reliant on or the who was supposed to be responsible for them fell short. And and the real hard part there is that we try and instill this whole idea about camaraderie and mateship and teamwork and all that stuff. And then as a junior soldier, you try, you know, you want to be enthusiastic and you want to be hard boy. So, you you know, you're going to buy into that shit hard. You know, everything's there. Like, it's all about the other guy. It's the guys next to me. It's it's this it's this concept of um, never leave one man behind. You know, yeah, it's that thing. It's the brothers by choice thing that's thrown around these days and stuff like that. So, the second that all of a sudden your own you know people are actually physically denying you what you need to just heal and get back to be a part functioning part of society. That's that's what fucked me up psychologically. It was my own people, the people that I was supposed to be able to trust implicitly. Like I shouldn't have ever questioned it, you know, because ultimately like if you're in a foxhole, like, and this sounds really dramatic and it's not anything like what I did at all, but, you know, back in the day, you know, if you're in a foxhole, you know, you wanted to know that the person next to you was going to be able to cover their sector. You know, otherwise why would you even have them there? They're a liability, right? You're better off just there on your own. So 
that's ingrained so heavily in us that we, you know, work as a unit, we move as a unit, we communicate as a unit, you shoot, move, communicate together so that you can get the job done. And then all of a sudden it's just not there, you know? And then even then too, like you start to get the apathy aspect there because there's people around the area, but they're powerless to do anything about it. And they've got their own shit to deal with. And so they ask you how you are and you go, well, actually, and then they go, oh, I didn't really want that. So fuck off and go about their day. You were having seizures. Yeah. Like you would literally we, – we, so to give you an example of what happened, we owned a coffee shop, right, and it's all in the book. We had to buy the coffee shop because I was travelling overseas so much for work and I needed to know he was safe. So we bought a coffee shop and we employed people who were nearest and dearest to us and we could trust. So <laughs> Matt's in the coffee shop this day and he's serving and he has a seizure and he's at the cash register. And it was only that Tash, our mate who was working with us, realised it. And God bless her because she just grabbed him and turned him around and she continued the, the thing, you know, sorry about that. <laughs> and then he came back to it and kept trying to cash register but he was facing the wall at that stage. And we can laugh about it now. But that accident took away Matt's ability to assess time. It took away his ability to assess capacity of, you know, going too far or what he's saying and, and boundaries and things like that. You know, the staff and I used to joke because Matt would say he was going for a walk, he'd be back in 10 minutes and three hours later he would turn back up at the shop and genuinely thought he was only gone for 15 or 20 minutes. When, when something happens to your brain and things that you and I just take for granted every day, the ability to process and things like that, when that's taken away from you and you don't know why, he became like a caged, wounded cat. And so we didn't know which way to pivot because we didn't know which map we were getting at any point in time. And you couldn't blame him because you knew he didn't understand any of it. But at the same time, it was really hard not to get angry and frightened and this constant, I don't know how to handle this situation. There are so many partners out there right now that are going through similar experiences because their partner has served and they've got traumatic experiences or traumatic issues that aren't being dealt with either. And so my empathy is, at, you know, massive to anyone out there struggling with a partner going through these kind of situations because you can't just say to them, hey, you've got a brain injury and you need to sit the fuck down and get some help yep. because they're being told by their peers that it's not true. And they are taught to weigh so heavily and believe so heavily in what anyone of a senior ranking person tells them that it's gospel and that's all there is to it. I watched his boss at the time come into our coffee shop and rock up to the counter like they were best mates and he was the one that was our roadblocker. He was the one that wouldn't support any medical transfer, any – he was the one that kept pushing for them to bounce Matt from pillar to post. We were sent to the Gold Coast. We were sent to Coffs Harbour. We were sent to Sydney. We were sent to Singleton. We were sent to Tamworth every time as a roadblock. Bucket loads of paperwork in our cupboards where Pete Goom, bless his heart, he was writing emails to these people going – he has to go to this medical appointment. You make sure it happened. And they were even going back to him going, no, nah, not going to do it. We don't have the money. We don't have, don't the, have money. the budget. Can't put, can't do the vehicle, you know, and then he'd have to spell out to them like exactly what, how it needs to be structured in the budget so that it would go through and that they actually had what they needed. And that was, that was even post the ministerial. So it, these people put money ahead of one of their own. 
These people put budgets. These people put their fucking ego ahead of a human being who was dying. And there's no easier way to say that. There is no other way to structure that other than if we did not push harder and we did not fight harder, he would not be sitting at this table with us today. Yep. And it was nothing to do with those assholes. They did not help in any way, shape or form. Pete Goom, you and me. Yeah. That's what got you through. 100%. And then the medical professionals who finally realised yeah. and diagnosed you with brain trauma-induced fucking epilepsy and old mate down in Sydney who said your adjustment disorder, your anxiety and your, pe- and your depression is not due to your yeah. service in Iraq and Afghanistan. It is as a direct result from this accident and the, and the things that happened and transpired post the accident. Yeah. And I still believe in the Australian Defence Force. Yeah, same. I do too. We both collectively still believe that we need a solid, strong Australian Defence Force. There's a few, like, I guess, words of wisdom from an old fucking salty old vet, and that would be that, you know, Bram Connolly, who's a, a um, commando, a rider, and he's an ex-Australian Defence Force officer, and he says, you know, don't be going into this thing like this is your only job. Enter the Defence Force with an exit strategy, mm-hmm. the same as you would with any business. And I'd definitely say that's fucking true. Like to the large portion of the soldiers that served under me or that I served with. Um, unfortunately, you know, for those guys, they actually, most of them left the Defence Force with less of an aptitude than what they entered the Defence Force with. And that's really concerning, um, especially when there's enough avenues for people to educate themselves whilst they're in. There's enough money there or there was back in the day for people to be able to facilitate. But there's this unwillingness of people to make it easy. Yeah. You know, the old guy, we never did it, so you shouldn't have to do it. Well, I'd actually like to be educated if that's okay, boss. So, And the worst part about that old guard that you refer to is half of them now are running a lot of the ASOs. They're all running the ASOs. Oh. Yeah, it's you sad. Know, so it's, you know, the hurdles are endless. If, if I was to, you know, add to that, you know, wise old vet's wisdom and that is that fucking don't sit back and expect – everybody to sort of rally around you like be the thruster be the hard charger read understand so that you can help the people that you're responsible for and that you can be the person you need to be for the people you're responsible to and have the moral courage to call it out when it's not because a lot of the times and I was just as guilty as most people is that I kept my mouth shut because it was the machine and that's how it works and that's how it's always worked but there's a way of doing things professionally, which is what we're supposed to be, which is professional fighters. And there's a way of doing it unprofessionally. And I think a lot of people think that turning up makes them professional, um, but it's how you turn up that makes you professional. And there's just not enough moral courage. No, and especially when the, the people that are, you know, anybody who is morally courageous ends up getting their fucking dick smacked. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, have a look at Bernadette Boss. Produced an incredible report, outlined a bunch of ways that she could improve the life of veterans so that we wouldn't need a royal commission into veteran suicide. And it just pretty much got thrown out. And I'm I'm going to own that if we're going to put that on the table too because I was absolutely a massive advocate for the royal commission. Yes. Because I wanted change. Yep. 
I didn't want anybody to have to walk through what we had been through and I'd watched enough divorces come from the Australian Defence Force that I wanted families to be recognised as an important part of soldiering. Yep. I did not realise naively, I should have done some more research, I did not know that the boss report existed when I was champion yeah. for the Royal Commission. And I don't believe a good portion of Australia realised that the boss report existed. I found out after I had petitioned for the Royal Commission and I read the report. Yeah, there's not a lot of people who'd be able to even say that. There is not a shit chance in hell we needed a Royal Commission in this country had we have just taken yep. the time and effort that she put towards compiling that report with the people that she put towards compiling that report, the efforts that went into compiling that report and – it's the issues but also solutions and, and things that they could do and they could implement quickly and efficiently and easily and it has all been ignored. Yep. Now, that report cost millions. Yeah. And we're back now again paying for another report. Yep. And I'm sure, I'm sure that the Royal Commission into Defence Suicide will bring some guidance and some understanding and some more foresight and thought into what's happening in our Australian Defence Force. But so did the boss report. Yep. Why the fuck are we spending more money again on formulating something that already exists with the solutions in them? Exactly right. And then it's not even like the boss report's the only one that's there. Do you know why we're doing it? We're doing it because the government didn't have the moral courage to implement change at the time the report was compiled. I mean, I I think we all fundamentally understand the system is broken. We just don't know what the fuck to do with it. Oh, I think we do know. We just we're not in a position to be able to make those decisions. So that, in a nutshell you know, was the accident. It's our life since the accident and there is no end for us post this accident. No. So we had very big goals. We had very big dreams prior to you having this accident. All of that got stripped away. Your career got stripped away. Yeah. Um, where we were going to go based on your next stages of your career and what you wanted to achieve and all the rest of it all got ripped out from under us. It wasn't just the accident that mentally and, you know, physically destroyed you through that process, but you lost your career. You lost yep. everything that you knew to be true to you. And there was massive questions from that about, well, who are you then? Yeah. What is left for you? And you still had wife and children and, you know, we, we were going to find a way through, oh, but – Probably another 60 years of living too, like at that point. Yeah, but it didn't feel like it, right? No, and no. you wanted out. Yeah, 100%, 100%. So through this process, you have a very young guy who has got a massive career ahead of him with the Australian Defence Force. It all gets ripped away. We have at this stage now two babies under the age of two. Um, we're trying to make a go of a business that we bought because we needed a safe space for him the business was financially destroying us because we're not retail people by any stretch of the imagination and we're going under. We're drowning at this point. We cannot see light at the end of the tunnel. The world's crumbling in and the Australian Defence Force send a gentleman called Pete Goom who starts to give us a little bit of light 
And in sitting with him one day in my lounge room, bawling my eyes out, just going, I don't know how to stop this roller coaster of hell, he very wisely turned to me and said, Kaz, if you're ever looking for the ADF to apologise, they won't, but they'll compensate you for what you've lost. They'll financially compensate you for what you've lost. Yeah. And that's just going to have to be good enough. And at that point for me, it's like, all right, so I can save our house. I can keep a roof over our head and I'll keep working. I can keep food on the table. Can you get him some medical help? Can you get him a medical team that can rally around him and at least give me insight as to how I handle the blackouts and what do I do when he's having a turn and those sort of things. So, you know, even Pete at that point had an uphill battle to try and push through for those things, but he worked really hard to – get us the medical answers that we needed, which then put Matt on a series of medications. I think at one point he was up to like 15 pills a day as they were bouncing him around trying to, and every time we would go because it would, one would have a different side effect to the other one. And so you didn't know if it was the epilepsy or if it was side effects from the medication. And, you know, one day he would be really nice and the next day, not so nice. Um, And so there's this constant battle. I would have to tell the kids, no, daddy doesn't want to come out of the bedroom today and we have to be okay with that, okay? So let's just keep the noise down. And you're on this constant eggshell. And there were really, really dark days where Matt would just disappear and we would all go into this panic. I would ring the shop and people would, we, we had this chain of, you know, everybody start looking for Matt kind of thing. And there was this one particular day where he was in a dark space and he'd gone off the rails and it was, you know, not long after we had moved into the, the house and he just made a phone call. Like that, he'd been gone for hours. We, everyone was looking for him and then the phone rang and it was him and I've answered it and there's just silence. And it was the first time there had been that realisation that he could actually end it because the pain is so great and he can't see through it I was fortunate because it wasn't that day that day he chose to ring me and I right wrong or indifferent screamed at him that if he 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 just I was saying you know are you there are you there please answer me please answer me and I just heard this very crumpled voice just say I just I, I can't do this anymore That was a hard day and I just screamed at him. If you choose to leave, I'll raise your kids to hate you because they weren't enough for you to hang around. He came home and we've probably had during the course of the last sort of 12 years a handful of times where we've come close and I write in the book that if he – historically had ever chosen to actually end it I wouldn't have got the phone call he you know it's going to be a really good day and he's just going to choose that he can't do it anymore and that's how I believe it will happen so the days that he calls even in his worst state is a good day for me because I have the opportunity to reach out and we're 12 years post the accident and we still go through yeah. hard times and hell where he's in so much pain and he can't articulate it and he can't escape it and he can't understand it. 
and he can't control it and you have to just ride it out and we have got much better we yep. we have worked so hard to work through those moments and to figure out what i can do we work really hard on the good days yep. to figure out on the bad days what it is I can say or what it is I can do that will be like a jolt or a trigger for him. It's not perfect and it doesn't always work and we refine it every every time we, you know, but this is our life. Yep. This is now what we will have to endure for probably the rest of our lives and and the good times are now getting longer and longer, which is a bonus, right? Yeah. But it never ends. No, it doesn't. And we've both done a lot of soul searching over the last decade or so where we've had to really, really scour our psyche and understand who we are as yep. people. And, I mean, I know that seems weird or sounds confronting sometimes when people meet us because we're very, very clear in who we are in yep. ourselves. Um but that comes from, I guess, hyper assessing everything I've done within a certain period. Like, you know, when something happens, it's a beneficial, try and take the lessons away and try and make up for those times because I guess in my brain it's almost wired a little bit that, you know, I've got a patch there that I've lost and now I don't know how long that my thing box is going to run like this for. So I've got a finite sort of area and nobody's telling me exactly what that finite area is. Mm-hmm. And so I have to really, really understand my brain and how I work and what I psychologically, you know, need to be nourished and what I need to put out into the world as best I can, how I want to be treated, how I want to treat the world too. So it's a fucking process and I can get why people just go, fuck it. <coughs> I'm out. It's fucking hard, man. And it hurts. Yeah. It hurts that. They didn't value what they had in you as a soldier enough to do better. It hurts that we have firsthand insight as to how bad our Australian Defence Force is structured yep. and how much help it really needs. Yep. And you want it to be better. You, you We know, we know that we need a, a, an Australian Defence Force that can protect us. It's scary yep. to think that, we're not already getting it better and, and right. But in releasing our book, probably one of the most eye-opening moments for me was in the first three months that we released the book and we're like two and a half thousand yep. messages deep in families that are on the same path. They're hurting and they're all defence families and they're all broken on some level because of something that's happened in service. Yeah. How do we get it so wrong? How do we not want better for these families? You know, suicide aside, like, yes, suicide is rampant in the Australian Defence Force, but so are the broken. Yeah. And probably more so. And the divorce rate and the family breakdowns and – that the amount of, of probably verbal and physical abuse that partners and children and, and parents have had to endure, not because the person's a bad person, because the person's broken and needs help. Yep. Where do we change that cycle? Where do we change where do we do better for that? Yeah. Exactly right. Um it's that's the trouble too, is that, you know, it winds up being the, the professionals who are professionally 
perpetuating the system seem to be the ones that maintain it. Yep. If you have a question that you'd like Matt and Kaz to answer on an upcoming episode of the show, send in a voice message. If you're listening to the podcast on Spotify, you can click the link at the bottom of the episode description to record a voice message. Otherwise, head to the website, loveconquersthepodcast.com and follow the prompts. We'd love to hear from you. We went through a lot of turmoil talking about writing the book and whether or not we were prepared to put it out there, warts and all. For me, the the first round of writing that book was just like venting. I just needed to get it all out because it was really cluster in my head and in your head. And since we've put it out there, I think I'm really proud of the fact that we put it out there, warts and all. I'm proud that we didn't skim over anything and that we, you know, got down to the nitty gritty of, yeah, this is us. And yes, we're flawed and no, we're not perfect, but we shouldn't have gone through what we went through. Yeah. And it should have been handled different. It should have been handled better. And whilst we weren't allowed to use names in there, those six people know exactly who they fucking are. Yep. And they have to now live with that for the rest of their lives and this is now in public forum. I might not ever get a sorry, but I got that. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. You know, like at the end of the day, you know, living well is obviously its own reward you know i feel like our lifestyle and stuff has gone from strength to strength since luckily by but, our but choice it's our and work, by you know. our work that's Absolutely. right and they don't get to have any kudos no. to that whatsoever no, they don't they don't they tried to make it so i didn't have you in my life yeah yep. whether they meant to or not their actions nearly took you away from your family yep and i will never forgive that podcast is hosted by Matt and Kaz Page and executive produced by Charlotte Goodwin. For more information, visit loveconquersthepodcast.com. If you'd like to hear more of Matt and Kaz's story, buy the book, My Broken Soldier, The Untold Story of Life Beyond the Frontline. Go to the website, loveconquersthepodcast.com and hit the button at the top that says buy the book. You can get it in paperback, there's two ebook variations, and you can get it on Audible if you prefer audiobooks. Love Conquers is a podcast for adults that deals with confronting themes of all kinds. Love Conquers is not a licensed mental health service and is not a substitute for professional mental health advice, treatment or assessment. If you are struggling, don't go it alone. Please see a healthcare professional. If you live in Australia, please call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go to lifeline.org.au. If you live outside of Australia, please search for your local crisis line and find support.